This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 59, Arjun's Dejection. Last episode, we began the events of the first of the battle books, the Bhishma Parva. For me, it was one of the most difficult sections to make sense of. I believe that the importance of the events to come compelled many ancient archivists and editors to pile on more details, more dialogues, and yet more introductory details. However it happened, the result is a nearly unintelligible hodgepodge. The storyline repeatedly jumps back to the eve of the war, follows some events to the dawn of the next morning, and then jumps back and starts over again. The military formations and their commanders are described several times, and each is contradictory. Sanjay is given his divine sight to witness the war, but somehow he's already had it for several chapters. Finally, King Dhritarashtra takes a perverse interest in geography, taxonomy, and augury, and uses Sanjay's gift to dig deep into these subjects while his sons and nephews are fighting each other to the death. Even Sanjay's mind starts to wander, and, gazing into the future, he sees Bhishma, the invincible warrior, lying dead on a bed of arrows. That, finally, is enough to snap the king out of his denial, and he asks his confidant to tell of all the events that led up to this tragic moment. So, for one last time, Sanjay jumps back to the night before the war and gives us a final description of the army's dispositions. We left off at the morning of the war. Each side has taken its position, and all the warriors are excitedly blowing their horns. This is where the section of the Mahabharata, called the Song of the Lord, the Bhagavad Gita, begins. The book opens with Dhritarashtra asking Sanjay to tell us more about the morning of the war. He says, Tell me, when my sons and nephews assembled on the field of Kurukshetra, facing off with each other, what did they do next? Bear in mind that for the entirety of the Gita, the story is told as a dialogue between Sanjay and King Dhritarashtra. Sanjay replied, When the first rays of sunlight shone down on the battlefield, your son Duryodhana looked across at the vast Pandava army and addressed his generals. He said, Behold the vast army of the Pandavas, arrayed for battle and commanded by King Drupada's son. They include many heroes, skilled archers, who can match Bhima and Arjun in battle. As for our side, we have even more great warriors, and we greatly outnumber them. But with Bhishma on our side, our army is invincible, while theirs can be defeated. The key to our success, therefore, is to keep Bhishma protected and in the fight. So let that be your primary duty, to protect our general, while he obliterates our enemies. The Karava army all cheered, beating swords against shields and blowing on their conch shells. As that great noise echoed across the field, the Pandava's army also began blowing on their horns. Many of these conch shells were far from ordinary. Each of the five brothers had conches that were named and had histories of their own. Arjun's horn was named Devadatta, and Krishna blew on his Panchanjanya, which signaled the end of the Dvapar Yuga and heralded the beginning of the Dark Ages, the Kali Yuga. You can imagine that this was a pretty fearsome sound, and it echoed through the heavens and across the earth, planting terror in the hearts of the enemy. Amidst all the racket, Arjun directed his charioteer Krishna to take him to the space between the two armies, so he could see more clearly what they were up against. Taking up the reins, Krishna drove them forward to the midpoint between the two armies, and said, Behold, the army of the Kurus! From this vantage point, Arjun could see fathers, grandfathers, teachers, uncles, brothers, in-laws, companions, and friends. Seeing all these relatives, whom he would soon be killing or getting killed, 
the son of Kunti was filled with despair. Arjun said, I see my own kinsmen on the enemy's side, ready to fight, and my mouth has gone dry, my limbs feel tired, my bow is slipping from my hand, and my mind seems a whirl. I can't see how anything good could come out of killing my own family in war. I don't care for victory and have no desire for kingdoms or wealth, so what is the point in all of this? It was out of love for our kinsmen that we put up with 14 years of exile, and to kill the murderers would only turn us into murderers. I know my cousins would happily kill me if they had the chance, but I have no desire to kill them. How could we find any happiness in killing our own family? Like the ripples in a pond, a single murder can corrupt a whole community and affect many future generations. Even the ancestors will fall from paradise without the offerings of a murdered son. We are about to commit a horrendous crime since we must kill our relatives to win this war. It would be better if I just lay down my arms and let them kill me. His heart full of grief, Arjun cast aside his bow and sat down in his chariot. Seeing this display of helplessness, Krishna said, What's this? The mighty Arjun is suddenly weak in the knees? This isn't like you. Arjun asked, How can I kill Bhishma and my own guru Drona? They deserve my homage, not my arrows. Were I to kill my kinsmen and betters, their blood would plague me for eternity. Even if the act were to make me the king of the world, I would be miserable with grief. So forget about it. I'm not going to fight. With a compassionate smile, Krishna said, You speak wisely, but you are missing the point. Wise men do not grieve for either the dead or the living. There was never a time when you and I and all these men did not exist, nor will there ever be a time when we cease to exist. This body of yours may grow old and die, but you will just get another body. You interact with this physical world, feeling heat and cold, pleasure and pain, but they all come and go. You endure them because they never last, but you are eternal. Whoever thinks their self can kill or be killed doesn't know their true self. We are not born, nor do we ever die. We are eternal beings. We are not killed when our body is killed. You have shed previous bodies and have taken on new ones as if they were suits of clothes. You cannot be cut, you cannot be burned, nor can you be wet or dry, so don't be sad. But even if you thought you were always dying and suffering through all these lives, still don't be sad. By choosing to be born, you must die. By choosing to die, you must be born. Those are the rules, so don't worry about it. Knowing your eternal nature, you should not grieve over these mortal creatures. Just mind your dharma and stand firm, because what else would you rather be doing right now? Kshatriyas cherish a battle like this one, because the doors to heaven stand wide open. But if you do not obey your dharma to fight, then you shall have committed a real sin, because everyone will remember this disgrace, and for a man of honor, disgrace is worse than death. Everyone will assume you are too afraid to fight, and will disparage your reputation, and what could be worse than that? So get up and fight. You'll either be killed, and you'll go straight to heaven, or you'll win, and you'll enjoy the earth. Fight this battle indifferently. Don't worry about victory or defeat, and you will incur no evil. Stay focused on doing the right thing always, but do not concern yourself with the outcomes. Those are not your responsibility. Renounce the fruits of your actions, and it will free you from the bondage of rebirth, bringing you to a state of perfection. In this state of awakened understanding, you will no longer fret over the past or worry about the future. When you can maintain the state of mind at all times, you will have attained enlightenment. Arjuna asked, You keep saying that the world is an illusion, that none of this exists, nor does it really matter. 
So why should I still go out and commit these dreadful deeds? Why should I care if people think I'm a coward? Krishna replied, So far I have taught you the way of knowledge for the philosophical types and the way of disciplining the mind for the yogis. You will not break free from this illusion by inaction. Some people sit in meditation, looking to all the world like a sage, but their hearts are full of attachment and their minds chatter endlessly. They fool themselves and others. In this existence, action is the only thing required of you. Even I am constantly engaged in action, although there is nothing that has to be done. Were I not to engage in action, the world would fall into ruin. While the ignorant act out of attachment to outcomes, the wise act without attachments. Give up your expectations and possessiveness, shake off this malaise, and fight. Wake up to your true self and resign your actions to me. One's dharma, even if done imperfectly, is better than doing another's, even if done well. Arjun asked, So what is it that makes people do bad things? Shouldn't they know better? The Bhagavan said, It is desire, passion, and anger that are to blame here. True understanding is lost in the smoke of these passions. Materialists think that their senses are supreme, but in fact the mind is superior to the senses. Knowing is superior to the mind, and above knowing is your soul. I originally taught this to Vivashvat, and Vivashvat taught it to Manu. But over the long years, the meaning got confused and became lost. Now, because you are my devotee and friend, I am now teaching you this ancient doctrine. Arjun said, You are the same age as me, so how did you teach Vivashvat? Krishna said, I have had many, many past lives, and so have you. Only I remember my past lives, and you do not. Even though I am infinite and eternal, and the source of all being, I sometimes assume this physical body. I send myself forth wherever righteousness is in decline and unrighteousness is on the rise. In age after age, I have come into being to protect the virtuous, destroy the wicked, and reinstate righteousness. As for you, the trick is understanding action and non-action. You need to understand what is action, what is wrong action, and what is non-action. The wise man's undertakings are done without desire or attachment. Always content, dependent on none, Having no stake in the outcome of his actions, he does nothing at all, even when engaged in doing things. Be satisfied with whatever happens, be free from envy, and feel the same about success and failure. You shall act, but you will not be bound to those actions. Physical beings are often deluded by their physicality, but once their delusion is destroyed by the discovery of their soul, that understanding, shining like a sun, reveals the supreme truth to them. The pleasures you can receive from your senses are sure to produce sorrow because they come and go. A wise man takes no delight in them. Krishna then described the form of meditation his disciples should follow. He recommends that we find a quiet, isolated place, find a clean spot to sit on, subdue our thoughts, and focus our minds. Sit still, holding your body, head, and neck straight, and gaze at the tip of your nose without looking around. Be rid of worry and fixed in your purpose. He concludes with this assurance. And so, the yogi, with his mind in check, attains the peace that ends in nirvana and abides in me. Krishna went on, Yoga is not for people who eat too much or like to sleep in, but neither is it for people who starve themselves and stay up all night. This discipline works best for those who are moderate in their food and sport, regulated in sleeping and waking, and disciplined in their activities. 
When you restrain your mind and all thought ceases, and you see yourself by means of yourself, you will know boundless bliss beyond the senses. It is that state which breaks the bonds of suffering that I am talking about. Abandon all desires, restrain your senses, control your mind, and think of nothing at all. If anything makes your mind wander, curb the thought and resume control. The highest bliss comes from the practitioner whose mind is serene. In this state you shall see yourself in all others, and all others in yourself. When you see me everywhere and see everything in me, then I am not lost to you and you are not lost to me. Arjun said, I don't see how it's possible to do what you're saying. The mind is fickle and turbulent. Calming the mind is as difficult as calming the wind. Krishna replied, Without a doubt the mind is fickle, but through constant practice anyone can pull it off. On the other hand, without self-control, I don't think it can be done. Arjun had another question. He said, Well, that still sounds pretty difficult. I imagine lots of people have tried this and failed. Isn't that the worst of all, since they didn't get to enjoy this world and they've lost the next? Krishna said, No, it doesn't work that way. You lose neither this world nor the next, because he who does good deeds and is committed to his own dharma does not experience misfortune. When you die, you spend countless years in heaven, and in your next life you will be born in a virtuous family and will have ample opportunity to continue on this path. In your next life, you do not have to start out from scratch. Instead, you are born in an advanced state and pick up where you left off. Thus, even the smallest effort on your part will guarantee you a place by my side, given enough time. Arjun now wanted to know about Brahman and how it relates to the soul. If I were to attempt to translate Brahman into English, the word consciousness might be the best fit. This would be the cosmic sort of consciousness, the consciousness that in quantum mechanics collapses the wave function and turns potentiality into reality. Arjun also wanted to know how karma, translated here as action, interplays with consciousness and the physical world. Krishna said, Consciousness is indestructible and supreme. It is the soul's intrinsic nature. Its creative force is karma, and that is what brings a physical world into existence. Consciousness, in its active state, constitutes the material reality, while its passive state constitutes the soul. Your thoughts and state of mind determine your fate. Thus, whoever thinks of me at their time of dying shall attain my state of being in the next world. I am easily reached by the practitioner who keeps all things from his mind except me. And those eminent ones who have accomplished this no longer need to be reborn, for they have gone to the highest perfection. All other forms of worship and sacrifice may lead you to heaven or other cosmic realities, but you will eventually have to be reborn here. But having reached me, there is no rebirth. But be warned that this supreme state cannot be attained through devotion to anyone else. You may wonder why this path is exclusive to me alone, but that would be because you do not know who I truly am. This knowledge, the secret and noble knowledge of my true nature, will free you from all doubts and sorrows. This whole universe came into being out of my non-material, unmanifested self. All material creation is a part of me, but I am not limited to just that. Without thought or intent, the physical universe springs out of me, is maintained by me, and then returns to me again and again. Many people are deluded by the material reality all around them and they think that is all there is. They do not perceive my divine nature and just see me as a weak human. 
Blind to the truth, their hopes, acts, and knowledge are all in vain. They are lost in darkness, and they unwittingly do bad things. But those who perceive their own divine nature are single-mindedly dedicated to me, knowing that I am the imperishable source of all being. You see, I am the ritual, I am the sacrifice, I am the offering, and I am the fire. I am the father and the mother of this world. I am the Rig, Sum, and Yajurvedas. I hold back the rain, and I send it forth. I am deathless, yet I am death itself. I am matter, and I am spirit. The priests who are dedicated to the Vedas, drink Soma, and perform all the rituals are sure to reach the holy world of Indra. They have a great time enjoying the celestial pleasures available there, but eventually they wear out their welcome and wind up right back here again. If you are dedicated to the gods, you go to the gods. If you are dedicated to the ancestors, you go to the ancestors. And if you are dedicated to me, you come to me. So whatever you do, whatever you eat or offer or donate, do it as an offering to me, and you will be released from the bonds of karma, of cause and effect. Even the lowborn, women, Vaishyas, and Shudras shall reach the highest destination by this means. You have found yourself born to this unhappy world and having forgotten who you truly are, so devote yourself to me, and I will show you the way out of here, back to your godlike state. This has been a pretty heavy dose of philosophy for one episode, and we're about halfway through the Gita, so I'll stop here for now. In trying to describe his cosmic nature, Krishna will soon grant divine vision to Arjun, who will get a glimpse of who Krishna really is. It's a bit challenging to take on this holy book like this and convey some of its meaning. As I have done with the epic so far, I'm paraphrasing the original text and jumping over the repetitiveness and obscure references or digressions. In the case of the Gita, this consists mostly of leaving out his technical references to Samkhya philosophy and the use of the terms yoga and yogi. Krishna's use of these terms are tangential, and he does not expound on their definition, so I'll leave it to you to study this more deeply. As for Krishna's message, I'm trying to convey it as best as I understand it. I believe my understanding of the Gita is adequate for the purpose, because I agree with Krishna that Brahman, or consciousness, pervades all physical matter and extends infinitely beyond that. Consciousness is also the essence of spirit or soul, and our true selves are eternal and indestructible. For reasons that are hidden to us, we have each chosen to conceal our divine nature, forget our past existence, and pretend to be mortal animals struggling to survive in a physical universe. The Gita, like all great spiritual teachings, is trying to wake us up and remind us who we really are. It is very difficult to be constantly mindful that our power and true identity resides in a part of ourself that is silent and invisible. Hopefully this episode helps somewhat to make you remember that. Thanks for listening. <laughs>